With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. In Condon. All right, welcome back. Governor Kim Reynolds has just begun. Let's get to her press conference here on 1460 KXNO 106.3 FM. 151 negative cases today for a total of 12,821 negative cases. Uh, The state hygienic lab has the capacity to test 1,329 individuals. We have 122 hospitalized as of last evening, and we have 431 recovered, which is 38% of all of our positive cases. As COVID-19 cases continue to climb toward our peak, which is projected to happen later this month, we remain intently focused on our mitigation plan to protect the health of Iowans, ensure our health care system and workforce are stable and strong, and slow the spread of the virus to save lives. But we're also looking ahead to ensure the health of our economy. In the weeks to come, as we see our rates of positive cases and hospitalizations decrease over time, we'll we'll begin dialing up our economic response efforts. Currently, we're leveraging state and federal assistance to provide much-needed relief to Iowa workers and businesses now and to help get them through this challenging time until we are fully open for business again. Two weeks ago, we announced the Small Business Relief Program, a one-stop shop for Iowa businesses to seek assistance through tax deferral, including sales and withholding taxes, and grants to assist with short-term cash flow needs. Since then, the Iowa Department of Revenue has received 5,700 tax deferral applications and expects to approve another 2,300 this week while continuing to review the rest. All applicants in good standing with the Iowa Department of Revenue will be approved and notified by mail. When a deferral is granted, taxpayers will have 60 days from the original due date to pay their balance due. Penalties and interest will be waived for those 60 days. The application process remains open through April. The Small Business Relief Program grants were also in high demand. The Iowa Economic Development Authority received nearly 14,000 applications from Iowa businesses, requesting a total of more than $148 million in eligible assistance. Today, I'm expanding the program from its original $4 million to $24 million, which will be provided through the State Economic Emergency Fund and the Iowa Economic Development Authority. And I'm pleased to announce that the first round of funding will assist more than 500 restaurants, bars, breweries that have been impacted by COVID-19, by the COVID-19 pandemic. These businesses were among the first to close their normal operation, and it is our goal to get them back up and running as soon as possible. Here to provide some more information is Director Durham, um, the Director of the Iowa Economic Development Authority. Debbie? Well, thank you, Governor, and uh, good morning to all. 
The health of Iowans has been in many of our prayers over the last several weeks, including my own, and there is no larger priority for our state. Also, I want to give a heartfelt thank you to our first responders, healthcare professionals, the homeless service providers who I had a conversation with yesterday, and our frontline workers for their expertise and commitment in assisting Iowans during these challenging days. Our team at the Iowa Economic Development Authority has been working tirelessly behind the scenes to assist as many of our small businesses as possible as they have closed their doors or have seen revenues dramatically drop. Actually, our team has spoken with or emailed with a large percentage of our small business owners from every industry sector and region of our state over the past couple of weeks. To our small business owners, we heard you. We heard every one of your stories about your family's businesses or your new venture. We heard it in your voice, we saw it in your detailed emails, and we witnessed it in your applications. I am here to assure you, judging by the thousands of emails and phone calls that we responded to, it reinforces, reinforces what we already know. Our small businesses are the backbone of our communities, and we are working closely with the governor to leverage resources to assist as many of them as possible. So let's talk about the process. We received nearly 14,000 small business relief grant applications, as the governor stated, including at least 15 from every Iowa county. Every application received was triaged, and I use this word very purposefully, because triage actually describes this entire effort and this entire process. We determined eligibility, and the businesses identifying the greatest revenue disruption were awarded in this first round of funding that went out last evening. As a reminder, this program was designed to be short-term, stop-gap funding until our federal resources became identified or available. The first round of the 503 email award notifications have gone out to business owners and, it, and additional notifications will be going out the remainder of this week. The initial round of funding totaled more than $10 million with grants ranging from five to 25,000. I can tell you as of this morning, we had almost half of those back already with signed contracts and W-9s and now in the process of getting their checks. Eligible applicants that do not receive a notification this week will be considered for potential funding grounds in the future, but a new application will not be opened. I do encourage, however, that all Iowa business owners that have been impacted by COVID-19 to visit iowabusinessrecovery.com for information about all programs and resources that we may or other agencies will have available that touch on business relief. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you, Debbie. And I want to thank the Iowa Economic Development Authority and the Iowa Department of Revenue for their effort, uh, for the effort that your teams have put forth to help Iowans at this time. You know, there is absolutely no playbook for the situation that we're in right now, but your willingness to develop solutions that will provide relief until we get things back up and running is making a difference for so many Iowa businesses and families during this time. So again, just a heartfelt thank you to all that you've done. 
So yesterday, uh, I did also provide additional information about some of the data that we are tracking to ensure that our hospitals have the resources they need to care for Iowans. And as our number of positive COVID cases in, uh, continue to increase, so as I mentioned, six regional medical coordination centers, or RMCCs is how you'll hear us refer to them, have been established by the Iowa National Guard to support the Iowa Department of Public Health and our Iowa Health Care Coalitions. The RMCCs help facilitate communication, critical information sharing, and coordination of healthcare resources within a region or across the state as needed. Today, I want to take a look at two additional regions and provide a snapshot of hospital resources that are currently in use for COVID-19 patients and the resources available to care for others. So we'll start with Region 1. Um, the RMCC Region 1 is located in the cent in the in the central and south central part of the state and it includes the Des Moines metro area. So as of yesterday, there were 33 COVID-19 patients hospitalized in Region 1. No new patients were admitted in the last 24 hours. They have 11 in the ICUs and six were on ventilators. At the same time, there were 1,433 inpatient beds available, 179 ICU beds, and 221 ventilators available and ready for patient care. In region RMCC region number two, which covers central and north central part of the state, they have two COVID-19 patients that were hospitalized in region two yesterday. No new patients were admitted in the last 24 hours. One patient was being cared for in an ICU and one was on a ventilator. During that same time frame, there were 231 inpatient beds available, 11 ICU beds, and 26 ventilators available in regions, uh, Region 2 hospitals. Just as we saw yesterday, uh, patient volume is manageable and resources are in good supply at this time. You may have noticed that the number of beds and ventilators is significantly less in Region 2 compared to the other RMCC regions. North Central Iowa has a much smaller population. The hospitals in those counties are smaller and they have, a fewer, and they have fewer resources than hospitals in more of our urban areas of the state. But if a facility in Region 2 experiences an increase in COVID-19 patients and needs medical equipment, the RMCC will facilitate getting it to them. In addition, if a patient in Region 2 community needs a higher level of care, that's what, available, that's what is available locally, they can be transported to another hospital either in the same region or elsewhere in the state. And this um, is the purpose of really establishing the RMCC model now so that we are ready to respond to any situation that may unfold. Again, I want to thank the Iowa National Guard, the Iowa Department of Public Health, um, the Homeland Security, and the local public health officials and Iowa's healthcare coalition partners for working together as one system of care. As I've said multiple times, we are in this together and I greatly appreciate uh, everything that they are doing to make sure that, oh, first of all, everything that we're doing is to prevent overwhelming our hospital uh, facilities and to protect our healthcare workers and to protect the most vulnerable, but also that we are prepared in the case that we start to see an increase in the numbers. So with that, we'll open it up for questions. Governor, I wanted to understand um, the spending on the uh, business grant program. So is it correct that the first round of funding just went out the door, is it last night that you said? 
and and so um, you know you're expanding the program from, from four million to twenty four million, uh, and I believe that's through the authority that the legislature gave you when they suspended. Right. Are there other? Have you used any of your other of that authority for other spending purposes? And then I also want to understand how the federal. Yeah. money is going to come in because we're expecting that so we have not yet so as we um, had indicated earlier we wanted to make sure that we had all of the guidelines from um, the uh, cares act so that we knew that we were using our money appropriately until we could have it be either backfilled or supplemented through mission uh, by the cares act I, I was not able to get on but my chief of staff was able to set on a call this morning with secretary mnuchin uh, iowa will be getting 1.25 billion in a block grant they are anticipating the rules and the guidance for that coming out next week. I think one of the things that the governors have continually asked for and I think was relayed on, on the phone call this morning is the flexibility to really, you know, as long as it's tied to COVID, but to be able to, you know, I could go to the Legislative Council, ask for additional transfer of funds, knowing that as the money comes in um, from the CARES Act, we'll be able to apply that toward the money that we were able to um, get to more businesses in a timely manner. So we'll have a better guidance on that next week, but I fully anticipate they are trying to be as flexible as possible. And if we have the resources to go ahead and work with the Economic Development Authority and their team for that short, that, that stop gap, <laughs> until they're able also to go online and, and apply through the small business um, SBA for some of the loan opportunities that are there. And I don't know, Debbie, do you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, let me just uh, yeah yeah so let me clarify that last night the applications that we sent out the 503 I think exactly was totaled over a little bit over 10 million dollars right so there will be another tranche going out today and probably another one the following day until we hit that 24 million dollar cap so Debbie the the total they've asked for is 148 million clearly you don't right. have that so 24 is the cutoff for us for, for yeah. right now, until we can better understand what's available through the CARES Act and how we can utilize that. But again, in conjunction with the SBO, SBA and other loans that they have available to some of the businesses, too. And then, Governor, you, you gave it the new number for Region 1. That's most important to most of our viewers now. So how encouraged are you by those numbers? And what do you want to tell Iowans about hospital? Are they prepared? And do you feel comfortable that we're ready for whatever might come down the yeah. road here? I really appreciate the data and the information that's being supplied to our team from the um, RMCC. So we really are able to track on a daily basis the number of beds, the number of beds being utilized, the number of ventilators that we have. And we can, you know, put that into the projections as we look at the peak. We are always preparing for the worst, but I am somewhat optimistic. We still haven't peaked yet. We're anticipating that at the end of this month. But again, uh, ten, only 10% are hospitalized right now. So that's that's a fairly good number. And I think the number that gives us a lot of hope is that the 38% um, of all positive cases have recovered. And so what we have seen over the last seven to nine days is our positive cases have been pretty stagnant. So they've stayed pretty much the same over the seven to nine days. And that's really what has been our goal is to really flatten that curve, not overwhelm um, our healthcare systems while doing everything that we can to to protect our most vulnerable Iowans by every single Iowan doing what they can do, and that is stay home, uh, reduce your trips to just essential services, whether that's to go to the doctor for groceries or to pick up medicine, uh, exercise.
guys, for heaven's sakes, get out there, but do it responsibly. Practice social distancing. Do not gather in groups of more than 10. And um, if you are sick, isolate yourself and stay home. And if we see that and we're seeing some of the ref the reflection of that, hopefully we'll start to turn the corner and we can start talking about how we dial back up the economy. Governor, do you have any more specificity as to when that peak will come? And if the state is still working on developing its own projection model, um, you know, what data is going into how you're projecting that? Yeah. Do you want to take that, sir? Let's see, I'll go this way. So thank you for the question. Um, we do continue our work with the University of Iowa in terms of analyzing the data. One of the things that I think we all recognize and we've talked about it at these press, press conferences is that um, some of the projections um, will be difficult to make because we have had a limited number of tests and limited number of testing capacity and that is something that we continue to work on every single day in terms of trying to increase testing capacity in the state. So we are actively working um, with the University of Iowa College of Public Health to develop those models. But I think to the governor's point, um, the most important thing that we can be doing right now is to prepare. Um, and so in, in to flatten that curve as much as possible, to understand what our resources are, to understand what the plans are, um, should we start to see um, increased hospitalizations in a particular area of our state. And so we're very focused on that. Um, we're doing that um, every single day. We just continue to ask Iowans if they continue to do the things that the governor has asked them to do, that public health has asked them to do. Um, I think that we'll be um, in, in good shape here. Thank you. Is it, is it safe to say that we have enough ventilators now, we have enough beds, we have enough PPE, or are you still looking for more of that now? Uh, the PPE shortages are real. We continue to look for um, PPE from all different avenues. Um, the Department of Public Health in conjunction with uh, the Department of Administrative Services and all of our other state agencies, and there have been manufacturing um, facilities in Iowa that are looking to help increase the supply of PPE in our state. So I think we feel pretty good from a resource standpoint in terms of beds and ventilators at this particular point in time based on what we're seeing. But again, critical to all of this is it really is important for all Iowans to continue to stay home, leave only for essentials. That's the way that we're going to slow the spread of the virus in our state and make sure that our hospitals and our health systems have the capacity to deal with patients who do become more seriously ill. I'll just put one more finer point on that. That is how we really protect our health care workers and our first responders and our essential workforce that's out there standing on the front line every single day taking care of Iowans. So the more that every Iowan does their part by really being responsible, you are helping save lives and you are helping protect our health care workers that are taking care of those most vulnerable Iowans that are in the hospital. And so continue doing what you're doing. I know, I know Iowans are, but for those few that maybe aren't, do your part. We can do it, and together we can get through this. And we can honestly, these press conferences, we can talk about dialing things back up, and I know that's where people want to be. So we want to do it in a responsible manner because we don't want to see another surge. But if we do what you need to do now, we'll get there sooner rather than later. Um, Rod Bojar from Sea Rapids Gazette. Go ahead. Rod, are you there? Yes, uh, Governor. Uh, I wanted to uh, ask that with, with, the, with the nice weather and limited outdoor options, we're, we're hearing reports of crowded trails for hiking, running, and biking where it's difficult to manage social distancing of at least six feet apart. And 
the problem such that some local officials are considering considering closing their trails to the public temporarily until you hit the COVID uh, curve flattening in the state's uh, peak period. Is it on the radar at the state level to consider closing those trails or otherwise expanding closures of outdoor recreation spaces? I hope not because we need that. We need that for our mental well-being. We need that for our kids and our families to get the exercise and to get outdoors. So practice social distancing of six feet. Kevin and I went for a walk on Sunday. We came across somebody. We both split on the sidewalk and practiced our social distancing of six feet. But the other you know, option is to take a mask with you. So if that becomes a problem, then you're protected that way as well. So we're trying to be you know, responsible and resourceful while always mindful of the need of the PPE and so um, they scarf, mask, whatever that may be as a secondary um, practice but first and foremost you need to practice the social distancing of six feet as much as you can. Uh, Caroline, go ahead. Governor, I have a question about um, the this notion of staying home and also not gathering groups of 10. Um, can you clarify that, you know, is the, the groups of 10 seems in conflict with staying home because it would seem that people could say that, oh, you know, a group of fewer than 10 people can come to my house for uh, dinner parties so long as it's, uh, you know, 10 or less. Can you clarify that? Yeah, I wouldn't do that, Caroline. doing something like that? Yeah, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I'm not suggesting that, but we have put out an order that you can't socially gather in groups of more than 10. Be responsible. I think the first thing I say is stay at home. You know, that's how you limit exposure, and that's how you limit exposing other ones. Everybody has to be responsible when they're making those decisions. So, you know, we're going to get together this Sunday for Easter via Zoom. You know, I'm going to have to cook my turkey, our three daughters or turkey ham. I mean, so, you know, we're using social media to, um, to, to connect, but, you know, we're not getting together with my family either because we need to do everything we can to stay at home, uh, limit, your going, limit going out except for essential services, and if we do this, we'll get through this sooner rather than later. David Pitt, go ahead. Yes, Governor, thank you. I, I, we noticed a 17% jump in hospitalizations in the last day or so, and, and I wonder if, if that increase is telling us anything about the severity or, or anything else that that. That, that might suggest data-wise uh, that we should be aware of. Okay, I'll let Sarah talk to you about that. Yeah, thank you. Actually, um, actually, what you're seeing in terms of the hospitalization data is a difference in the way that that data is being collected. And so, um, previously, we had been asking local public health agencies to, to follow up with patients to determine hospitalization status. Um, over the course of the weekend, um, we put out a new mandatory reporting order, and we're asking hospitals to report that information to us directly. Um, the, the intent of that is really so that we have um, a more um, timely more timely information about our number of hospitalized patients. Um, previously, some of them were still pending investigation by local public health agencies, and so we also wanted to have more timely understanding of what our hospitalization rates were. And you heard the governor mention um, earlier that we have about 10% of our um, total cases that are hospitalized at this particular point in time, and I think that is um, consistent and actually maybe a little bit lower than um, what we've seen nationally with a 15 to 20% um, general hospitalization 
hospitalization rate. So, um, it, but what you're seeing is not necessarily a jump in hospitalizations overnight, for example. It's just more timely reporting so we have a better, more accurate picture of what our current hospitalization rate is. Next question, uh, Rachel at Channel 5. Hi, Governor. Um, your team, two questions. Your team told me yesterday um, independent living facilities aren't monitored in the same way as long-term care facilities. Can you explain why that is? And then also three employees at the Veterans Home in Marshalltown have tested positive for COVID-19. What is the state doing to respond to this location? And do you consider this an outbreak? Yeah, at the Iowa Veterans Home, was that the question? I'll go ahead and answer that, and then I'll have Sarah talk about yeah. independent living and long-term care facilities. Actually, um, the Commandant has been very proactive in educating the staff and the facility based on the Department of Public Health guidelines. Um, they have, uh, they, they restricted visitors, I think, March 15th is when they started doing that, if not sooner than that. All the staff um, is screened for respiratory systems. They take a temperature scan when they're coming and leaving. Um, uh, anybody that has tested positive um, and anybody that they've, uh, they, anybody that they've come in contact with, they are testing outside of the facility with a drive-up test, So, and, and they are keeping them isolated until they get the test back to find out whether they're positive or negative. Uh, as of t the today, I think, or yeah, today, they have had 25 tested, 19 negative, three positive, three pending. They have tested 25 residents, and they have zero um, that are positive. Um, the staff member that was tested positive Positive on the 26th had no contact with any of the residents. The staff that was um, tested positive on the 27th, the last day of work, was the 17th of March. Uh, she was a direct care provider, um, but so they are they have been able to test anybody that she had come in contact with. And then again, the the last one, um, the last day of work was March 29th. They also had, uh, made sure that those that had been they had been in contact with, knew it, and were watching for symptoms and were being tested if they saw uh, any symptoms. Also, all direct care staff are expected to wear surgical masks and face shields at all times when they're dealing with the residents. And the non-direct care providers are um, re re required to use homemade masks, and if they would like a shield, those are being provided as well. So I will ask uh, Sarah then to talk about the long-term care. Yeah, thank you. So one of the things we know about this virus is that it spreads very quickly um, in situations where people have close contact with one another. And so when we talk about long-term care outbreaks, and we're talking about um, long-term care facilities where we have a number of patients that are living very closely together, which we distinguish from an independent living, living facility where residents might have their own apartments. Um, and so, you know, it's not that we don't follow up and um, provide guidance and assistance to independent living facilities or assisted living facilities, but when we're reporting a long-term care facility outbreak, it's more in terms of your traditional nursing home where we have a number of patients that are living in close quarters with one another. And so, as because we know this virus is so contagious, and um, when people are in close quarters like that, um, that's what we're referring to when we say that we have an outbreak in a long-term care facility. So it doesn't mean that public health isn't doing everything that we would 
um, normally do in terms of contacting patients and contacting um, people that they may have been in close contact with, like members of their immediate household if they are living in more of an independent living facility type situation. Uh, but when we talk about long-term care outbreaks, it's really more your traditional nursing homes. Because the other thing we've seen about this virus is a quarter of our cases in Iowa, um, they're within a, within a household unit, within a family unit. So where we have um, a particular member of a household um, that's been identified as a positive case, a quarter of our cases have been in contact with people that they're living with. And so that's the other reason why we provide guidance that if you do have a positive test result within your household, um, those people really need to isolate themselves. And we provide the same guidance to long-term care facilities that I walked through um, previously. If we have ill residents, they really need to be um, segregated from the rest of the population because we do know this virus spreads um, very quickly in congregate living uh, situations. That's going to do it for uh, Kim Reynolds' press conference as it winds down here on a Wednesday. We'll continue to carry these every morning uh, at 11 o'clock. Uh, we're going to talk some draft, the NFL draft coming up with Matt Menasarian, Sports Info Solutions, uh, when we come back from break. But before we go, let's do this. KXNO and iHeartRadio would like to help you with your bills. Text the keyword SMILE to 200-200 right now. That's SMILE to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Back to sports. Miller and Condon till noon. It's Des Moines Sports Station. 1460 KXNO 107.net. Ken Miller, Trent Condon. Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Make up your mind. Hi, welcome back. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Trying to hook up with Matt Manasarin, sportsinfosolutions.com. Take a little bit of a, a quick peek, a first look at the NFL draft two weeks from tomorrow. Uh, Trent, while we wait from him, uh, mm-hmm. the, the news yesterday that all of these um, five men in the Big Ten are, are uh, opening the door for Luca Garza, who, look, he did pretty well with this group of uh, of terrific players all season long. Uh, but Kofi Coburn and well, Jalen Smith yesterday, right? Yes, Those were yep. the two yesterday. Um, Aturo had come out mm-hmm. a few days ago. Of course, Caleb Wesson, Matt Harnes is in the transfer portal. Uh, there's speculation he's going to end up in uh, Louisville as one of the destinations. Of course, Xavier Tillman, he's also putting his uh, name in for a look-see. So point being is, as deep as the Big Ten was as far as big men this year, with a couple we didn't even talk about grad- graduating Shaq and running Carter, out of Right, exactly. Well, I really liked his game at Rutgers. You did, and you should. It was yeah. really good. Uh, but, man, oh, man. Was it, what are you saying? He's going to average 30 next year now? Well, Trent, I mean, <laughs> sheesh. Oh, that path is there, right? Look, I love the fact that his dad is posting those workout videos. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of college basketball players doing similar, but it's just fun to watch. You think just he's doing sports. that in a part two for the NBA camp? Because Luca Garza, doesn't he... Doesn't he owe it to himself to at least yes, kick the tires? And yes, the process absolutely. is completely different than yes. a normal year. Right. But at the very least, to get that feedback, to get maybe on, he's already on the radar of people. People know who he is. He was mm-hmm. an All-American. Right. If you're a scout and you don't know who Luca Garza is, you might be needing to look at another line of work. But 
Oh, by the way, did you see his tweet yesterday after the? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. After uh, the Hawkeye fan. But hey, let's not rip Obi. Right, anymore. exactly. What a and, class act. Well, and it's it's gotten so divisive, and I mm-hmm. I understand that's the way that it is for fans and getting in there and standing up for their guy. Look, the argument there aren't guys usually that are seven seeds that win National Player of the Year. Right, that's what I was going to be. Right, there aren't usually teams that have eleven losses, twelve losses uh-huh. if they wouldn't have won the Big Ten tournament. That win National Player of the Year. That's the likelihood. If Dayton played in the Big Ten, would they have the same record? Of course they wouldn't. Mm-mm. But that's not the way this plays out. Nope. That's not the way this goes. Adam Morrison, if he would have played the Pac-12 yeah. as opposed to played in the WCC, he also wouldn't have had the same kind of numbers, the same kind of record for his team and the notoriety that came along with it. That is the nature of the beast. I think that Luca Garza, Rob Doster, who we've had on, he continued to point out, the negative side of him on the defensive end. It's not just that, though. There's more to this than just the defensive end. No doubt about it. Well, it was, um, look, it's been, the way he's handled has been um, good, for, good for him for doing it, right? What, what a class move on, on his part, the fact that, you know, he called off the, uh, the the Hawkeye fan base, if you will, in a lot of ways, said let him enjoy it, and uh, we'll see. And I'm with you, Trent. I think Luca Garza has to do this for himself. He has to put his hat in the ring and just see what the, if nothing else, just to get the feedback. I think he's coming back. I think you think he's coming back, but I do yeah. think that he's uh, going to uh, seek that feedback, and why wouldn't he? Let's talk some NFL draft, shall we? Matt Minnesarian, Sports Info Solutions, uh, joins the program. We're grateful to Matt uh, for coming on two weeks from tomorrow the first round of the draft. We'll have a weekend of NFL in the spotlight. Matt Trenton, Ken in Des Moines. Thanks for coming on, Matt Manassarian. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me. I hope everybody's staying safe and doing well. We are doing our best, sir. Yeah, we just had the governor's press conference. I want to just pick up on that before we get into the draft. Mm-hmm. Central Iowa, Des Moines. We're doing a good I job. I think we're doing that. This is an exhale and every coast no. is clear. Right. Just keep doing what you're doing. Anyways, Matt, uh, let's get uh, let's get into this draft. I have to feel uh, that there's a team that, and to me that team that's kind of falling under the radar is the Chargers at six. It seems like the five pick with Miami might be in play as far as moving up and grabbing a quarterback, or maybe they're very content to take Justin Herbert. Um, personally, I wouldn't be. I would be all in to get Tua. But if you're the Chargers, you're the second, you're the second fiddle in Los Angeles. You're moving into a new stadium. Your longtime quarterback, Phillip Rivers, is now an Indianapolis Colts. Uh, no, um, no offense to Tyrod Taylor. He's a backup. He's not a starter. I have to wonder if the Chargers are laying in the weeds and getting ready to make a move up and perhaps as high as two if they think they have to go that far to take Tua Tagliavoa. Where are you on this Chargers? Yeah, I'm with you there. I think they you're right on. For a while, it seemed like they were really going to roll with Tarad. But the more time goes on, the more it really seems like they've just been trying to position themselves to get their new quarterback in. This is a team, when you look at last year, they only won five games. But we do a couple of things at Sports Info Solutions, you know, looking at the analytics. Something called Pythagorean wins, which would tell you based on how many points you scored and allowed, how many games you should have won. They should have won eight and a half games based on that. And then if you look at what we call expected wins based on our, our war metric, which is basically add all the players on your, together, on your team together and their performances, we would expect the Chargers to win 10.5 games by that metric. So the, they weren't as far off as I think um, a lot of people, you know, you might expect with a five-win team. And all of a sudden, I, I just would be shocked if they went in the season with their rosters so set in so many places and that big hole at quarterback, which is to Rod Taylor and really nobody else. 
Matt, as you go through this process and you're scouting as you do uh, throughout all the different players in the NFL draft, how different is it compared to just a normal draft scout, a person that we you know see on CBS, ESPN.com, those kind of people that are doing their thing with you with that analytical mind as you're going through these draft prospects? Yeah, I'd like to think that I'm pretty different than most of the, the media people out there. Maybe they get some, some better clicks. But uh, my background is as a football scout, so I spent four years with the Saints, a year with the Browns. Um, I've been around Mickey Loomis, Ryan Pace, Michael Lombardi, uh, you know, some of the best in the business, learning the scouting report side of things, the real true traditional scouting. But then at Sports Info Solutions, we're tracking everything that happens on every NFL and college football game, every play, hundreds of data points. We have at least four scouts watch every game on video, tagging all these plays. And then we create different stats, basically, from the numbers. So as opposed to creating a grade and saying, this guy's a 96 rating, you know, like your Madden ratings, what we're doing is we're, we're finding out from the numbers how much each of them actually contributes to winning and then reporting that back to you in the scale of points. So, you know, like a great example of that would be Nate Stanley, not a guy that I think is a really high-end NFL prospect, but when you do look at some of the analytics on him, he was actually fifth in this year's quarterback class in, in our statistic that we call total points, which, which ranks how valuable you were to your team this year in, in college, um, which is a little bit different than a projection. But, but yeah, the, you, know, you try to add all of this stuff together. You try to get the best scouting reports you can, the best analytics you can, and what it matches. And when you get a, a, a nice, clear picture, I think those are where you make good picks. Have you seen a draft, Matt, uh, that is as deep as, it, uh, as this one is at the wide receiver position? You know, every year uh, I try to tell people, you know, why my team-building philosophy. I'm much more concerned with, after the quarterback, building up front than trying to get uh, these different skill position players. And the reason is because every draft room I've ever been in, when you get to the end of the draft, you're in the seventh round, you're getting ready to figure out who you want to call in free agency, there's always running backs left on the board and there's always receivers left on the board, right? There's never offensive linemen, especially tackles. You never, you know, high-end pass rushers go early. Uh, it, it's rare that you find uh, corners that can really run that are available late, but there's always receivers and running backs. So you have to understand that part of it is that there's just people like this exist, and that's a reason for the depth. The other thing is, with all the seven-on-seven that goes on year-round in states like Florida and Texas now, there's just more and more receivers that are ready to play, especially as NFL offenses are developing uh, and adopting spread systems that come from the high school game a lot of the time. So these 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 receivers know how to run. You don't have that three-year development anymore. So um, that's, a, that's a way of kind of explaining it. But then to go back to your question, absolutely. This receiver class is absolutely ridiculous. We have 32 players, excuse me, 36 players that we rank as, because we don't draft based on, you know, you're, you're a sixth-rounder, you're a third-rounder. We say, what are you going to be on our team? we got 36 guys that we think are going to be, at least a number four receiver for a team. So one, two, three, or four. Guys that are roster-worthy, um, there's at least one for each NFL team to go around. So the depth, the depth is crazy. And the high end, there's seven or eight guys that I think become starters by year two. A couple of guys that are probably Pro Bowl projections right off the bat in, in your Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb. Um, and then as, as, as you get into day three, there's still going to be guys that are available. Matt, uh, a guy that I'm incredibly intrigued by is Isaiah Simmons, 
from Clemson. Is he a linebacker? Is he a safety? Whatever he is. But in today's age of football, with the speed that he has, just the impact. And for you as a scout, how you how you grade a player like that, just not knowing exactly how he fits in the NFL scheme? Your thoughts on Simmons? Simmons is an absolute beast. If you have somebody that can play multiple roles for your team, that's not a problem, right? We don't have a problem with LeBron James and we ask him to play defense because he can guard a center, he can guard a point guard, he can guard any position on the field. So the fact that he's positionless helps him. It doesn't hurt him. That's Isaiah Simmons. We're talking about a guy that is, is a linebacker. You're talking about a guy about 6'3", 230. You know, I don't know exactly what the combine measures are off the top of my head, but this is a guy that has the measurables to be a linebacker, but he lines up at free safety. He can play in the back end. He can line up in the slot and be quick enough to guard slot receivers. He's got all kinds of length. We've seen how fast he can run based on the combine, and he can also rush the passer. So Isaiah Simmons is is really, I think, one of the great poster children for positionless football in, in defense mm. when we talk about NFL football. This is thing in basketball. Now it's coming to football with players like this because Bill Belichick wants a guy that says, oh, okay, I know how to manipulate him. We can just line him up against the uh, the tight end. He can't cover my tight end. Or, oh, this guy's on the field. We're going to run it down their throats. With Isaiah Simmons, you can't make that choice. This is a guy with elite range, with great blitzing ability, can cover on the back end, multiple levels of the field, sideline to sideline. We have all these different statistics um, that we rank linebackers by. Broken tackle rate, run defense total points, adjusted tackle depth, pass coverage total points. He is number one in every one of these categories, and in most of them it's not even close. So uh, this is just this is just uh, the future of football in a lot of ways, I think, and I have zero concerns about finding a role for him. Uh, I'm anxious to find uh, get your take on Jalen Hurts, who apparently wowed him at the combine. Most uh, most scouts came away with that feeling that uh, that he um, really helped himself in Indianapolis. I don't. Th- I mean, he's not a first round pick, but where where are you on on Hurts? Can he play uh, in this league as a starter for maybe not a decade, but uh, you know, can he have a productive career at quarterback in this league? You know, for me, I really don't think so. I really don't think this is a guy that you want to sign up and say he's going to be our starting quarterback and uh, you're going to get a guy that's an ideal starter. You're even, you know, when we rank quarterbacks, we say this is a guy I can win because of, this is a guy I win with, this is a guy I can win in spite of, or you just can't do it. I think you can win in spite of a Jalen Hurts. You can create an offensive system where you can be productive enough that you could probably deal for your way to a Super Bowl. Um, but, I, but I think really when you look for quarterbacks that, that – aren't going to have limiting factors. The thing with the Jalen Hurts is once it becomes a drop-back game, if you, if you don't have the lead and if the other team can create a lead and they can make you play left-handed where you can't be relying on, on the run-pass option game and stuff like that and you have to drop back and throw the ball, this guy doesn't have great accuracy, doesn't have great decision-making. Um, and, and really, when we saw in the national championship game a couple of years ago, was that they pulled him out when that situation was there. When they were behind, they said, we can't win with this guy. We need to bring in the Tua because he has that sort of arm, that throwing ability that can get us back in the game. So I like Jalen Hurts a lot, and I think there is a Taysom Hill role for him. I love the idea of getting him into a system where, say, I've got a mediocre quarterback that we struggle in the red zone. Bring Jalen Hurts in on third down. Bring him in on the red zone, in the red zone. Um, do all your sort of wildcat type stuff with him so that you can be that change of pace. Um, but at the end of the day, and, and this is a guy with good advanced stats too. He did some really nice things uh, in that Oklahoma system, which certainly has its benefits. Um, but, but for me, at the end of the day, I just don't see him as having the skills that I need, the critical factors, decision-making, 
accuracy and the ability to, to perform and, and lead his football team and make his teammates better. I, I just I wouldn't want to roll with Jalen Hurts on a, on a down in and down out basis. Talking with Matt Manassarian, Sports Info Solutions. Matt, last thing for me, looking at the Iowa prospects that are anticipated to go in the first round, your thoughts on Tristan Wirfs, the offensive tackle, and A.J. Epinesa. Yep, love Tristan Wirfs. I think he's uh, he's going to be a great pick for somebody. Uh, I think everybody's kind of in agreement, really. I've, I've never even really seen this much consensus of the four tackles that uh, everybody considers the top guys, Andrew Thomas, Jedrick Wills, Wirfs, and Becton, of course. Um, I think all of those guys are starters for somebody worse. I think is a little bit better suited to be on the right side, but I, he's obviously got experience on the left side and athleticism for days um, to do it. So um, we think he's going to be a really good pick. It's funny because as much as everybody's sure that these four guys are all in, in the same category, there's not a lot of consensus about what order they should get picked in. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that. A little bit lower on Epinepsa myself, um, I think, as you guys are probably familiar with him, he's a really good player on the field. He abused uh, another offensive tackle. Yes, he did. Austin Jackson, <laughs> who's going to be coming out. He just absolutely abused. Yeah. It's hard to like Jackson that much if you uh-huh. watch that game. Um, but Evan Epson for us is going to be great on, on the rundown. I mean, he is he's a very good set-the-edge type guy, great play strength, hand use, um, does everything well, really. Um, you have no concerns about him on the field. Where I have my questions is more, can he become a high-end pass rusher? We don't see a ton of explosion, bend, uh, repertoire in, time, in terms of his pass rush game. He's, he's really a power guy as it is right now. You did see 10.5 sacks each of the last two years. You see over 40 pressures each of the last two years. So it's not as if he's been somebody that, that hasn't been productive at all. Um, he's, he's got about 25% of Iowa's pressures on the quarterbacks that they've had over the last two years, which is very good. Um, but at the end of the day, it's hard for me to say, yeah, I love this guy in the first round when I don't think you're going to be a difference-making pass rusher. I kind of think he's, he's a good guy as a pass rusher. He could get you maybe in the high single digits, but I don't really see him as a double-digit guy. Um, but certainly, I mean, adjusted tackle depth, just to give you an idea, he's, he's been 30 and 40% better than the average defensive end in terms of where he makes his tackles on the field. Uh, so this is not a guy that just racks up garbage stats. He's making plays near the line of scrimmage. Um, and I think, I think eventually he becomes an effective player for somebody, if not a difference maker. Sports Info Solution. That's great info there, Matt. We appreciate it. Last thing, and we'll let you go on this one. The running back, not uh, clearly as coveted as it once was. My favorite one in this draft, and I'm anxious to get your take on this because there's a role in the NFL for guys that are five foot seven, five foot eight, Maurice Jones, Drew, Darren Sproles, that type of running back. And this year's, uh, MJD, if you will, uh, is, is clearly Clyde Edwards Hilaire from LSU. I think this guy's going to have an incredibly productive career. There's a role for that t- that body type in the NFL. Your thoughts on the LSU RB? Yep. Uh, as soon as anybody says my favorite running back, I know exactly where they're going. <laughs> it's hard to watch this guy and not have him be your favorite. Uh, he's short. He's stout. He's got that Maurice Jones-Drew style where he's low to the ground, but he still has a way of kind of bowling ball uh, people over as he runs. He's got an elite spin move, as good a spin move as I've seen. Uh, you know, since the spin doctor Robert Smith probably hmm. uh, to, to go back in the day there. Um, he, he's better as a runner than people realize. A lot of people like to think, okay, he's gonna, we've seen what he does in space in the passing game, and obviously he can do stuff catching the ball. Not great hands, I will say that. Not great hands, not great catch radius, 
but obviously he's a mismatch with his ability to separate against linebackers and, and safeties and coverage. Um, but really as a runner in a zone scheme, I think this is a, a more, more of a special ball carrier than people realize. Um, he's not running people over. He's not power back. But if you have a zone scheme offense, if you're trying to do a lot of RPOs or zone read type stuff, this is a guy that when you get him in space, um, he, he, does, he does ridiculous things. And like I said, not the power to run over the 300-pounders, but when he's got a safety lined up uh, eight yards into, you know, into the second level or he's lined up against the corner over there, those guys don't want any part of him. So I really like him a lot there. He's behind a couple of other guys in the draft. DeAndre Swift, for me, he's the top running back in the draft, just ahead of Jonathan Taylor and J.K. Dobbins. All these guys probably a little bit more balanced in their skill set overall. Edward Delaire, got to get better in pass protection or else the, the defense is going to know. He's on the field. There's no way that they can pass protect me, and so, so you can bring extra things there. So don't love him there. Don't love the power of the catch radius, but to your point, the skill set is awesome. He's got the vision. He's got the contact balance. He's a playmaker um, in that spin move. Uh, I'll tell you. Fun to watch, no doubt. Matt Manassarian, Sports Info Solutions, sportsinfosolutions.com. As always, Matt, thank you. Maybe we can catch up with you draft week for one more conversation, all right? Absolutely, anytime. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Matt Manassarian, sportsinfosolutions.com. That is, are we out of time, Trent? We're running short here. Just a little bit, about a minute left or so. Okay. Before uh, we hit the skids for another day and another night of nothing to watch in space. <laughs> uh, we'll do restaurant tomorrow, uh, radio yes, tomorrow. We, we are full tomorrow, but uh, that doesn't mean. You know, here's the thing that's crazy about this whole thing that we're doing here. Are there no restaurants in Ames? Oh, hello, Ames. Right? What are you doing? I don't get it. We'd yeah. love to hear from you. Um, we're, we're full tomorrow, but we do it twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday. We do have an Ames business coming on tomorrow, but if you have a restaurant in Ames and you'd like to tell our audience that you're still open and you're doing carryout and here's what your menu consists of and the hours that you're open, we would love to have you on and you can share with our audience what you are doing. That goes for anybody within the sound of our voice. We're going to be in Pellet tomorrow as well. Hello. Uh, restaurant Radio. Murph and Eddie at 2. The Fanatics are coming up at 4. And the Morning Rush tomorrow at uh, 6 a.m. Will that do it for the program? That'll do it. We will talk to you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Miller and Condon. 10 to noon, Monday through Friday. Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 1.1.